right now for us, it's probably hard to to imagine a feeling of things being as they're supposed to be. Everything feels like it's up in the air or scattered all over the ground, but not where it belongs. Uh, Where the people of Jerusalem find themselves in Nehemiah 8 is in one of those places that we can only from here imagine, a place where it feels like finally things are at least beginning to become what they are supposed to be. The wall is finished. The people are settled. It's the beginning of the seventh month by the Hebrew calendar. Uh, For us, that would be about the middle of September. And we're told at the end of of Nehemiah 7 uh, that, that the people are settled. And as Dale mentioned last week, had the opportunity to listen to his message this week, and as he mentioned uh, in his message on Nehemiah 7, this could really feel like a time to just sit back and cruise, a time to just say, finally, things are the way they're supposed to be, and we can just be comfortable, and that's it. There is a place for comfort. We're going to see that in this passage. There's not a place simply to decide that, well, everything is as it's supposed to be, so there's nothing left to do, nothing left to pursue. They've been brought to where they are for a reason, and it's not done yet. What we'll see in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that God's people are renewed in their relationship with him by understanding and obeying his word. Now, that understanding and obeying in this very passage starts with a very extensive listening to his word. Now, we've, sometimes we read the whole passage together uh, when we're going through a passage on Sunday mornings, particularly if it's not a really, really extensive passage. Sometimes, if it's a long passage, we'll go through it a piece at a time. I do think that it's fitting for us this morning, given the fact, the fact that we're reading a passage about people spending hours just straight listening to the Word of God, uh, for us to at least listen to one chapter all at once. So I'm going to allow us to to go ahead and sit for that, uh, but I want to encourage us to, as it were, stand in our hearts uh, to be really attentive to the Word of God, which is exactly what we find God's people doing in the passage that I'm about to read. This is Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square, before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, 
Ashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. <clears throat> and, all the people, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, <clears throat> This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he, sa then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day from the first day to the last day he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. All the people gathered as one man. According to chapter 7, verse 66, all the people would have been somewhere in the range of 42,000. That's a big crowd. Even when people were allowed into baseball stadiums, that would have been a really, really healthy crowd at a baseball game. And here, people, this, this many people, this size of a crowd is gathered together in the square. And it does not appear, we're not given any, any indication that Nehemiah has gathered the people. Ezra is here too, 
sort of have this dynamic duo of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra is here also, and, and there's no indication given that Ezra put up sort of promotional flyers that, hey, we're going to get together, we're going to have this service, we're going we're to have a revival together. The, the initiative that's described here is described mainly in terms of the people. It's the people who told, this is verse 1, who told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So if the hand of God was at work to move the heart of the king in chapter 2, and if it was at work to restrain the enemies of God's people so that the work could go on, and if it was at work to move in the hearts of the nobles to be a part of the work, then that same hand is very much at work here as well, in the heart of the people. He's not just about rebuilding a city, he's about rebuilding his people. And that's what he is able to do and what he's actually doing. He's rebuilding them by developing in them a desire, something they want, a want that really shouldn't be taken for granted when we watch it. They, they, they get a vision for something that they want, and it's not a vision that everybody in their nation has, has had. It should have. When Paul writes to the Romans, he writes about the people of Israel, and he describes how being born as an Israelite, being born inside the walls, doesn't automatically make you right with God. So then he wrestles with the question, okay, if, if being born inside the walls doesn't make you an insider with God, then then is there any real spiritual benefit to being born an insider in that sense? Or to use Paul's words, what advantage has the Jew? And he answers it emphatically, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says to begin with, and then he doesn't list anything else. He actually does later in chapter 9. But here he stops there. He says the, the advantage of being an insider is that God spoke to them. He drew near to them and he spoke. And he had what he spoke entrusted to writing for the good of his people. And here the people feel the privilege. And they want it. And they say, bring Bring what God has written and read it to us. Tell us what God has said. They were hungry to hear what God had said to them. And so, verse 3, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. We might stop there and just say, are you, are you there with them? Are, you, are your ears, heart, are they coming today Eager to hear God's word. I had to wrestle with this myself this week. And, and to really come before the Lord and say, you know what? This is disturbing to realize and it's disturbing to say, but I am not as excited about your word as I have been before. And I perhaps could have shared that with you and you perhaps could have come to me and said, you know what? Uh, that's not okay. You would have been right. There's all kinds of ways of, of, of addressing that. You could say, for instance, well, there are, there are whole churches in China that don't have as many Bibles as you have in your own office. It's really not fitting for you to take that for granted. 
to take God's word for granted. And that may, that's true. Uh, there's certainly an example there that may have caught my attention, may have made me feel guilty. But in the end, for me, as it would probably be the case for you, it wouldn't actually solve the problem, wouldn't actually solve the attitude that I was feeling rightfully guilty about. <clears throat> and yet the Lord is gracious, and it's fortunate that this very passage isn't actually about me. It's fortunate for all of us. It's about people who serve a better example. People who, at least in this moment, understood the privilege of having been spoken to by their God. Watch them respond to it in verses 5 and 6. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. He's there on a stand that they built to put him with God's word above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So here, here's the word of God above them, and here's perhaps 42,000 people, and they see the word of God open and they stand up. It looks to me like a nest of 42,000 hungry baby birds saying, feed us, we're ready, we want to hear. And they understand that what they have to hear is something more than a news article that they ought to pay attention to, something more than a government mandate that they ought to interpret. This is life for them, and it's life because in His Word, God Himself has drawn near to them in relationship. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Hearing the words is necessary, and they do it for a long time. They do it from the morning until midday. And they also know that hearing the words, while it's necessary, is not by itself enough. They, they have to understand, and they long to understand. In fact, uh, it's everybody, we're told, who has the ability to understand. We see that in verses 2 and 3 that have gathered together for this purpose. People say, can I understand what is written here? Well, if I can, then I want to, so I'm going to show up. And they were ready. Now, understanding takes work. Sometimes it feels like if it takes work to understand, well, it just feels like that's maybe just academic or that's only for conceptual people or something like that. No, everybody who has the ability to understand wants to. And it, it does take work. It takes hearing and listening and thinking and processing. It takes work on the part of the receiver. Somebody has to be attentive to what's being said. And it also takes work on the part of the giver, uh, work on the part of the teacher. And so Ezra can't feed the hunger of 42,000 people by himself. And so he needs help and so he's got these 13 men up on the platform with him, and then another 13 men join him in this work, and they spread out. They spread out among the people, and they start to say, okay, were you able to hear that? Did you hear what Ezra said when he read the word? Did you get the sense of what he meant? 
We're told in verse 8 that they, these 13 other men who spread out among the people, read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense. So some of this might have just been a matter of amplification. Here's 42,000 people and no PA system. So just spreading out to read the word closer to people where they can actually hear and to give the sense. So there's amplification. Uh, there might be translation also. There may be people here who are more familiar with Aramaic than they are with Hebrew. So to say, here's, here's what this word means over here so that you can understand what God gave us through Moses. Maybe explanation as well. You get to a verse that says, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And it, it, that might bear some explanation for here's how a, a statement like this that, that might come as a surprise to us. Here's how this fits in the context. And here's what this is really all about. They're giving the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, in one sense, there's just clarifying what the content means. But they're not doing that just so that people can gather up sort of a wealth of knowledge of what the Bible means. We're told that they gave the sense so that the people could understand the meaning. That word that's used for understanding there is a word that's used pretty selectively in the Old Testament. Sort of a, sort of a special word and it's used more times in this chapter than it is anywhere else in the Bible. When it is used, it's used to describe somebody like Joseph as he stood before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would say, where in the world can we find somebody that's got this kind of understanding? It's used to describe uh, Solomon as he comes to the Lord for wisdom and God promises to give him wisdom and understanding. This is not just general knowledge. This is the kind of insight that, that does things to us and that helps us to do things. It's, it's an insight that changes things for the better. They were, these teachers, by giving the sense, were helping the people to get the point, to understand what the law was really about and why it mattered. They were, they were giving them insight that when you get it, you respond to it. And this, this desire for understanding in verses 1 through 8. And then, when you have that kind of understanding, you respond. And we see the response in verses 9 to 12. That responding starts with the heart. It starts with a deeply emotional response. So if you're listening to the words that God gave to his people through Moses. Say, for instance, you're listening to Deuteronomy 28, where you're told one of the reasons why this matters so much for you as God's people. Say you're listening to Deuteronomy 28, and you hear a warning. <clears throat> Verse 58 if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And then down to verse 64, 
and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. God has been right, and he's been clear, and he's told us ahead of time exactly what would happen if we didn't listen and obey. And guess what? We didn't listen and obey. And we got ourselves exactly where we deserved to be. You hear that. And if you're being attentive and you're getting the sense and you're getting the understanding, then how do you respond? We can see why, verse 9, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Well, what they had understood was right and true. We'd been ungrateful and rebellious. And what happened to us is exactly what God in his trustworthy words said would happen to us. What they've heard is, what they've understood is true. They, they've gotten part of the point, but they haven't gotten all of the point. When they get all of it, it's actually going to change their response dramatically. Four times in this passage, the people are told, don't grieve. Calm down. Quiet down. Don't grieve. And three times they're told the reason for that is because this day is holy to the Lord. Their, their response is understandable, and yet they are told, do not grieve. Instead, rejoice because this day is holy to the Lord. What's the point? Why is he telling them, don't grieve because this day is holy? Is he saying, don't cry on Sunday? We're just supposed to be happy today? No, there's a very compelling reason why this day is holy and why the holiness of this day should cause us, first and foremost, to be happy. First of all, why is this day holy? Well, one of the passages that it looks like they're going to have their attention on, if they haven't already, is Leviticus 23. We, we have been told in verse 2 of our passage this morning that this is the first day of the seventh month. And Leviticus 23.24 says something about the first day of the seventh month of every year. It is a day that is to be a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation, a holy gathering of people. A day of solemn rest. A day of Sabbath. A special Sabbath gathering on the first day of the seventh month. And here they are. So what's that about? What is it about a, a, a serious gathering of rest that should cause them to rejoice? Well, what was the Sabbath about for God's people under this covenant? When God called them every seventh day of the week and on other certain days throughout the year to rest, why was that? Because he has made a place for them to live with him. He's made a way for them to live with him. And they needed regularly to feel 
the reminder that they did not make this place for themselves. They're not the ones who, who get this all fixed for themselves. They, they needed a regular way of feeling the fact that God is the one who made a way and a place for us to live with Him. So we're not going to do anything else. We're not going to depend on our own efforts. On these days, we're just going to enjoy being together with Him. Because He's drawn us to Himself. As if God is saying, I made this place and brought you here so that you could dwell with me. And that's good, calming news. So, verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. There, of course, is a time and a place to respond with honest grief before the Lord for our sin as we recognize it. We'll see a shape of how that happens actually in chapter 9 next week. But it's also true that the, the, the power to move forward, the power for change, isn't found in our sorrow. It's found in God's kindness. What is their strength here in this passage? Do not be grieved, this is verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You and I will never find the strength that we need to change, to live as faithful people before the Lord by getting worked up enough in our sorrow. We find the strength that we need by remembering that the Lord in His faithful mercy is still here. He's still speaking. He's still for us. He still calls us into His presence. And they get it. They don't just make a choice to act joyful. They understand. And so they are joyful. Then verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. It's not just a matter of, hey, we're smarter now. We graduated. Let's have a party. They have something much better than that to party about. Something that they have understood that God has called us to Himself. That even with our dirty history, he's, He still has a place for us to draw near to Him. And on this day, He tells us just to be near to Him. So we rejoice and we feast and we help other people to do the same thing. <clears throat> they got the point. The law points you and me out as sinners. But it's not the final word of the law. The final word of the law is that God is the redeemer of sinners. He's the one who brings his sinful people back. And here they are. And how else do you explain the fact that you're here? That you've been brought back not only from Egypt once before many years ago, but that now you've been brought back from the exile that you earned for yourself. And so their sorrow is replaced by rejoicing. We see a second response to the Word of God in verses 
13 through 18. So they recognize what a gift that it is that God's word has been spoken to them. And when you, when you recognize that, when you have that kind of understanding, you just want to know more. Uh, what they've received is good, and it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that serves as an appetizer. There, there's, this is so good, I must have more of this. And so they want to expand their understanding. And so in order to do that, they expand the leadership that helps them with their understanding. They've had uh, these Levites and priests, perhaps the, the 26 men that have been named already, they're involved with this along with Ezra and Nehemiah. And then they, they add to them. In verse 13, these men are joined by the heads of fathers' houses of all the people. It's as if there's this, this Sunday school teacher's training meeting. It's like a leadership training meeting, and they start expanding this to more people who can expand the Word of God to more people, like 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says to Timothy, the things that you have heard from me, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's this constant ongoing multiplying of teaching so that people can teach. Because we always have need of more from the Word of God. And they study together. They look carefully. And they make a discovery. Verse 14, as they studied together, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, sometimes, some things that we are told to obey in the Bible um, are very broad and life-consuming, and, and the, the shape of that obedience is different in different situations. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's going to look like a million different things. Sometimes, we read something in the Word of God that is just really, really clear and concrete, and there's one way to do it. So they, they find something like that in Leviticus 23. So they hear that, uh, that during this week, during what's called the Feast of Booths, the people are supposed to dwell in these, these tent shacks. They're supposed to go gather together leafy boughs and make these, these sort of tents out of them and live in them for a week. So they explained to each other what these booths looked like, and they, they made little flyers that had the booths on them, and the children made scale models of the booths, and they, they had uh, t-shirts printed that said, Booth Week, I was there. That's not enough, is it? They didn't make the t-shirts, by the way. <clears throat> Understanding is more than being able to parrot the words back. This kind of understanding causes you to do things. And so they did. So, we're told, verse 16, the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. So, this happens the obedience is concrete and obvious, and it can be seen. This is not just about 
learning to answer all the little detailed questions that our curiosity comes up with when we start hearing the Word of God. This is a heart-level response that happens in real time. Richard Sibbs commented on a time in the life of the church. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan in, let's say, the 1600s. Uh, was looking back on a time in the life of the church when there was a lot of time spent answering those little detail questions without doing much about it. He says, The age of the church, which was most fertile in subtle questions, was most barren in religion. Real religion, he means. For it makes people think religion to be only a matter of cleverness in tying and untying of knots. The brains of men inclining that way are hotter usually than their hearts. Here are people with warm hearts and warm minds and warm bodies, frankly, uh, because they're camping. And you can sort of imagine the temptation to ignore this particular command, this particular part of the command, unless you really like camping. If you're anything like me, and tent camping doesn't have the appeal that it has to other people, then maybe you sympathize a little bit more uh, with something that the Israelites were skipping and shouldn't have, and were missing out as a result. In fact, we're told they did this for, this is in the middle of verse 17, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. They hadn't done it. Now, they had evidently, at least from time to time, celebrated the Feast of Booths. They'd done the feast, but they had missed out on feeling the point of the feast. What was the point of the feast? This is actually described once again in Leviticus 23. This is verses 42 and 43 of Leviticus 23. There are a couple different places in the Law of Moses where the Feast of Booths is described. As the people study the law, I think this is the passage they were looking at. And and here's what it says. This is Leviticus 23, verses 42 to 43. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Why is that? So that you can be uncomfortable for a week and being uncomfortable will make you a little bit more holy? Maybe you can kind of prove how much it's worth to you to serve God by doing something that you really don't like very much. This is not to alienate people that like camping, by the way. I know some of you do. That's fine. But this is a rather uncomfortable thing for them to do, especially when they've just settled into their city. It'd be nice to just be in a comfortable place. So what's the point? Is it, I want you to sacrifice something for me? No. This is about belonging. This is about answering the question, how did you get here from where you were? Leviticus 23.43 That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You do this to remember the desperate situation that you were in that you could never have gotten yourself out of, that I got you out of so that you could dwell with me. I did this in order for you to have a relationship with me. 
and Israel, since the time of Jeshua the son of Nun, that's uh, uh, an alternate spelling of Joshua. So from the generation right after Moses until now, they had skipped this. And now they do it. And the result is not simply that they say, wow, I'm glad that's over. Well, I'm really glad that we obeyed in this area and now our consciences are a little bit more clear. I'm glad we can move on to something more comfortable. What's the result? End of verse 17. And there was very great rejoicing. This was given to them to help them feel the fact that their God had rescued them from a foreign land. A place that wasn't their home. He had rescued them really from homelessness. And now he had done it twice. The second time he'd done it, they had especially earned their homelessness. And he, he once again, as he promised, has brought them back from it. And it helps sometimes to do concrete things, bodily obedience that helps us to feel this reality. So they obeyed bodily. And their place in the story, this history of God redeeming people, allows them to see even more clearly than people before them God's expression of His faithful mercy. His expression of the fact that He has promised to be faithful to His people, even though His people don't deserve it. To put it in terms that the Old Testament uses a lot, they, they get to feel from their vantage point in salvation history that His steadfast love endures forever for them. Because they had felt the heart of the God who had redeemed them as His people. That was the point of the booths. And having felt that, they... They are drawn into this kind of relationship with the Lord. This kind of relationship that gets what it means to belong to Him. And that gets the purpose of belonging to Him and serves that purpose. We've looked earlier at the fact that God has drawn them to Himself in order for them to be a kingdom of priests. In order for them to stand between Him and the people of the world. To represent Him to the world and to represent the world to Him and, and what allows them to be prepared to do that? Well, it's actually listening to and understanding and obeying what he's told them. That's exactly the way he describes it in Deuteronomy 4.6. He says, I've given you my statutes and rules. That's in verse 5. Then he says, keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding. In the, sight of, in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, they, they, ha they get something. And, and what they're going to see is not that you got it because you were smart enough. They're going to see that you got it because I've drawn you into relationship with myself in which you talk to me and I listen. And I talk to you and you listen. That's verses 7 and 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? 
And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The, the good news is that the reason his word is so, so compelling, the reason it draws us in, the reason it's so relevant is that, that an ignorant punk like me can't empty it of its relevance by ignoring it. When I find myself in a place where I think, I don't feel drawn to the word of God, the Word of God has just as much power to draw as it ever has before. And it never stops. And it always holds out not merely information, but the faithful mercy of God. It always has the power to draw us back in. And here in this passage, in, in Nehemiah 8, God is gently inching His people closer to the new covenant. When he, when he brings them out of Egypt under Moses, he does these extraordinary outward miracles. And he parts the Red Sea, and he sends bread from heaven, and he brings water from the rock, and all kinds of amazing things that they could see with their eyes. And he's moving them toward a time when the miracles he does will be miracles that are in many ways invisible. And just as much as they're invisible, they're all the more dramatic and all the more important. He's moving them toward a time when he will not give them his law on tablets of stone, but when he will write his law on their hearts. We really see a foretaste of that in the way God has worked in his people here. When you see them, look at the law and stand up and say, feed us. That's a foretaste of what God is going to do under the new covenant when, as he promises, I will write my law on their hearts. He's going to have to bring it awfully near in order to do that. We can't get there to have it done for us. It has to be brought near to us. Somebody has to bring the word of God near enough to us in order to write it on our hearts. And that's exactly what happened. And the word, this is John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He didn't leave us in our tents. He came and pitched his tent among us to bring the word of God to us in a person, in the person of Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled everything the law required of us in order to bring the benefits of that to us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's where we get the whole point of the Word of God. We find it in the person of Jesus. And we still have this Word about Jesus, this Word that is about Jesus, written down for us. So I hope that even if you've been in a season when you're not feeling the excitement of the Word of God, that this example of even people under the Old Covenant is enlivening to you. You think, you know what? I'm not going to wait till I feel it to go back and open the Word. I want to open it. I want to. I want to understand it. I want to really get what it's about again. God is for you in that. As you open His Word, He's not leaving you off to the side, saying, 
Open the Bible and get your attitude right and then come to me. He's the one who's drawing you to it in the first place. And he's going to help you. He's going to help give you that understanding, the insight that changes you and expands that change to other people as well. And as you do, be watching. Be watching for those opportunities to take what the Word of God says and do it. Sometimes it's going to be very clear and concrete. Other times it's going to be something that takes a different shape at different times. But be asking that question, how can I draw near to the God who's drawn near to me by taking his word and doing it today, perhaps in a way that I didn't yesterday. The result, when we do it, is very great rejoicing. Father, we thank you for the reliability of your word. We thank you that it is so much more than information, that it's an expression of yourself to us, that while it exposes us as sinners, it doesn't leave us there. It, it exposes us to you. And it exposes us to the fact that you have made a way by drawing near in your son for us to live with you. And you've made a place for us to come to you in him. May we experience that by understanding, by rejoicing, by obedience. May your spirit empower us for this in Jesus' name.